Today I'm beginning my fourth teaching on how to stay positive in a negative world. You know, there's a lot of people that honestly don't see this as being that big of a deal. And they just think, well, we live in a fallen world, bad things are happening, and if if you aren't bothered by it, and if you aren't distressed by it, well then you just aren't paying attention. And they basically embrace the fact that it's just discouraging and stuff. You do not have to live that way. And I've been giving a lot of scriptures on this, and I've used a lot of scriptural examples about Noah, about David, about Abraham and Sarah, and how that these people were able to maintain their faith and their focus even though they went through very trying situations and times. With Abraham and Sarah, they never did see the fulfillment of everything that God told them, and yet they remained faithful. And you can do it. I tell you, this could be one of the most important things that you've ever heard me minister on because it's just really practical things about how do you stay positive in a negative world. I want to go today to talking about Joshua and Caleb. These were the two spies who went to spy out the promised land. For those of you who aren't familiar with the context, of course, God sent Moses. Moses delivered the Jews out of the land of Egypt but then they got into the wilderness and they rebelled against God. And within it was just about one year after they had come out of the promised land and the Lord sent them to Mount Sinai. They received the law and the nation and the way that the nation was to function was all established. That took about a year for those things to happen. But then right after that, the Lord led them to go in and take over this promised land, and to drive out the inhabitants and to occupy it. But the people decided that they wanted to send spies into the land, and so they sent 12 spies, one spy from every tribe, and 10 of the 12 spies came back and brought up an evil report and just spoke about how that, yeah, it's a great land, but there's giants there, but they have walled cities. They were, we were like grasshoppers in their sight. And they brought up this evil report, and it caused the children of Israel to be dismayed. You know, here they were in a negative situation, and they looked at the worst, and because they did not stay encouraged and stay positive and stay in faith... It stopped God's plan for them. And the, long, the end result of this story is that they spent 40 years wandering in the wilderness that God never intended for them. And it was because they became negative. They got overwhelmed with the circumstances instead of standing in faith. And I'm telling you, there are some of you that may think, well, you know, being positive in a negative world, what does it matter whether I'm negative or positive? It... it cost the children of Israel 40 years in the wilderness, and I'm telling you that it's costing many of you your health, your prosperity. It's cost many of you your marriage. It's cost you your children. It's cost you your job. And you know, I'm saying this in love, but there are some of you wondering about why has my life gone the way that it is, and it just seems like you're in a holding pattern. You just keep going around the same mountain over and over and over, and nothing changes. And it's because you have received the negative report of the world around you and it has stopped you from entering in, stopped you from taking a step of faith and receiving what God has for you. And so there is something that we can learn here from Joshua and Caleb. Here, I want to read some of this to you. Moses sent these uh, spies into the land. They went and 
came back and the land was so fruitful. Look at some of this. It says in Numbers chapter 13, verse 23, that they came to the brook Eskel and cut down from thence a branch with one cluster of grapes and they bear it between two upon a staff and they brought of the pomegranates and of the figs. You talk about being a prosperous land, a land flowing with milk and honey. One cluster of grapes was so big it had to be carried between two men on a pole. You know, many people think that this is somehow or another an exaggeration because we just don't see this today. But at that time, things were different. At that time, the nation of Israel was so blessed by God. It was a land flowing with milk and honey. Things have changed. After the curse from God came upon the nation of Israel and after they were led into captivity and after Sodom and Gomorrah was destroyed and that entire land fell down and became below sea level and after a lot of things, you can go over to Israel now and in the area of Hebron and around there that used to be very good. Now you can, it can be five and six feet between clumps of grass. I mean, it's nearly like a desert with just little sparse vegetation. But at one time, it was lush. It was so lush that they had to carry one cluster of grapes on a pole between two men. Just huge amount of grapes for two men to have to carry it. So this is the land that God was giving His people. And they went into the land and anyway, uh, they brought back this report and here are some of the things that these spies said when they came back to the nation of Israel and to Moses and gave their report. In verse 27, Numbers 13, 27, And they told him and said, We came unto the land, whither thou sendest us, and surely it floweth with milk and honey, and this is the fruit of it. And they brought these cluster of grapes, the pomegranates, the figs, all of the fruit and stuff. Nevertheless, the people be strong that dwell in the land, and the cities are walled and very great. And moreover, we saw the children of Anak there, which are talking about the giants. The Amalekites dwell in the land of the south, and the Hittites and the Jebusites and the Amorites dwell in the mountains, and the Canaanites dwell by the sea and the coast of Jordan. And Caleb stilled the people before Moses and said, Let us go up at once and possess it, for we are well able to overcome them. But the men that were with him said, We be not able to go against the people, for they are stronger than we. And they brought up an evil report of the land which they had searched unto the children of Israel, saying, The land through which we have gone to search it is a land that eateth up the inhabitants thereof. And all of the people that we saw in it are men of great stature. And there we saw the giants, the son of Anak, which come of the giants. And we were in our own sight as grasshoppers, and so were we in their sight. Notice that it says that they brought up an evil report. Did they say anything that wasn't true? Weren't there giants in the land? Weren't the, weren't the uh, cities walled cities? Didn't they have all of these problems? Weren't the people there stronger than them and just the natural? You know, they didn't say anything that was evil in the sense that some people would use it today where it's a lie, it's a deception. They were speaking the truth, but they spoke, they emphasized all of the negatives and they let the negatives dictate whether or not they could do it. You know, when God sent these spies into the promised land, their, their job was not to evaluate if they could take the land. That wasn't one of their responsibilities. 
God had already told them that they were going to take the land. God had already told them that their defense had departed from them, that the fear of God had fallen upon them. It wasn't a question of whether they could do it. They were just supposed to go up and decide which city do they take first. Are the cities walled? What kind of effort did they have to put into it? But they brought back a report and they'd said nothing but facts, but they emphasized all of the negative facts and didn't put it into the context of the fact that God was going to overcome that. They didn't emphasize the positives. And I tell you, you have, if you are going to stay positive in a negative world, you cannot just take the negative things and the things that are said and things that may be true, stories that you've heard, people that you know, situations that are actually true in your life. Even though they're true, that doesn't mean that they're a good report. It says over in Hebrews chapter 11, it says, By faith we understand that these people received a good report. And it was talking specifically about Joshua and Caleb. It takes faith to see beyond just the negative things that are going on and to see the promises of God and to put it into its proper context and say that we're still going to win. You know, I've heard lots of people say this, that I've read the back of the book, the book of Revelations, and regardless of what the devil does, regardless of what all the ungodly do, we win. And that's true, but I can say that that happens in the middle of the book, in the first of the book, all the way through the book, we win. But ultimately, if nothing else happens, we have a Savior who is coming again, and He is going to right every wrong, every single injustice will be dealt with, Every person who has ever lied to you, taken advantage of you, hurt you, has done anything, every single action will be brought to justice. If it doesn't happen in this life, it will happen at the great white throne judgment of the Lord and He's going to set things straight. And if you were to put things into that context, then even when people do you wrong, and even if it looks like they've got away with it, through faith, you can have a good report. And you can say, you know what? It's not over. It's not over till it's over. Even if this person is now dead and gone and you think, well, they got by with it. They didn't get by with a thing. It always surprises me, these people that go out and murder people and shoot them up and then turn and kill themselves as if somehow or another they escaped justice. They may have escaped the justice of man, but they just ushered themselves into the justice of God and they'll be dealing with that throughout all eternity. There is nothing that has ever happened that has been wrong, that won't be righted. And see, if you begin to look at things that way, it changes your perspective. And you need to take a lesson here. Joshua and Caleb saw everything that the other ten spies saw. They saw every single thing. And yet, they had a completely different take on it. Caleb is the one that spoke up here in Numbers chapter 13. And it says, he stilled the people before Moses and said, let us go up at once and possess it, for we are well able to overcome it. The other ten, not Joshua, but Joshua and Caleb were the two who had a positive report, but the ten saw the exact same thing and said, we are not able to overcome these people. They are stronger than us. See, they only looked at it in the natural realm. If all you're doing is evaluating your situation based on the natural then again, I say something is wrong with you if you aren't discouraged because we live in a fallen world and there's a lot of bad things out there. If nothing else, every one of us, if Jesus doesn't come back in our lifetime, every one of us is going to die. 
I mean, if you just looked at things in the natural without thinking about God and His promises and eternity and spiritual things, there's no reason to be positive. But there are these spiritual truths. If worse comes to worse and we do die, we are going to live forever in eternity with Jesus. And we are not going to have any more sickness or sorrow or pain. There won't be any weeping or crying. There won't be any more tears. We're going to live in perfection. And if you were to look at things and then take all of this into account, well, then you have reason to be hopeful. You can say that in the natural it may be hopeless, but in the supernatural with God's power, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Philippians 4.13. And see, you have to do this. And this is what Caleb was doing. He saw the exact same giants, the exact same cities, and yet he said, we are well able to do it. How come one person can be diagnosed with cancer and it not be bothered. It doesn't bother them. And another person diagnosed with cancer and they just fall apart and they're, they're just miserable and they're, they're ready to give up. What's the difference? Is the cancer different? Is the prognosis different? Nope, it's not that. It's what's on the inside. It's the way they think. And you know what? You can grab hold of the promises of God and you can encourage yourself when everything around you is discouraging. You can be positive in a negative world. And the way that they did it is they factored faith into this equation. Let me turn on over to the 14th chapter. And in the 14th chapter, uh, Moses is rehearsing some of these things again. And here is what Joshua and Caleb said. So this is a further explanation. It says in Numbers chapter 14... Uh, that the people were going to make a captain and turn back to Egypt and enter back into slavery because they were just absolutely certain that they couldn't enter into the promised land. They didn't want to live in the desert. And so they were going to return to bondage. That was unnecessary. If they would have just had a little bit of faith in God and taken responsibility, they could have taken a step of faith and they could have entered into the promised land and they wouldn't have had to spend 40 years there. But here's the way that Joshua and Caleb responded to this. In Numbers chapter 14, verse 6, And Joshua the son of Nun, and Caleb the son of Jepuna, which were of them that searched the land, rent their clothes. And they spake unto all the company of the children of Israel, saying, The land which we have passed through to search is an exceedingly good land. In other words, guys, look what you're about to give up. You're about to lose this land flowing with milk and honey that is so prosperous that one cluster of grapes has to be carried on a pole between two men. They said it's an exceedingly good land. If the Lord delight in us, then He will bring us into this land and give it us a land which floweth with milk and honey. Only rebel ye not against the Lord, uh, neither fear ye the people of the land, for they be bread for us. Their defense is departed from them, and the Lord is with us. Fear them not. Yes, there were giants. Yes, there were walled cities. But man, that was, a, that was an asset. Just think about it. These people were going to enter in and occupy homes that were built for giants. So that means they had to have huge ceilings, huge doors, big places to live in. They were going to move into mansions because giants lived in there. And you know what? They could have looked at the positive side of this. You know, I heard a friend of mine, he said this about what would have happened if, uh, you know, David would have killed a dwarf. 
Well, everybody would have written and said, man, this, you know, man killed a dwarf. It's unfair. He killed a giant. The reason we're still talking about David hundreds, thousands of years later is because he went against these, you know, these big obstacles, had these big problems in his life and he overcame it. People don't talk about how awesome it is when you overcome these little tiny things. And likewise, it was just a great opportunity for God to show himself strong. He, they were going to go in and overcome these giants. And yet, the people brought up an evil report. Not a false report, but they just talked about the impossibility. They saw themselves as grasshoppers is what it says. Look at this in Numbers chapter 13, verse 33. It says, And there we saw the giants, the son of Anak, which come of the giants. And we were in our own sight as grasshoppers, and so were we in their sight. Did you know it doesn't matter how anybody else sees you? What determines the outcome is how you see yourself. These giants may have looked at them as grasshoppers, but the truth is they were the covenant people. You can see this over in 1 Samuel chapter 17 when David went to fight with, the Goli with Goliath, the giant. He came and he says, Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? You know, to us, we sometimes just read through that and don't think about it. But what that was referring to, circumcision was the sign of the covenant between God and the Jewish nation. The, this Philistine, Goliath, didn't have a covenant. In a sense, here's what David was saying. Who is this man who doesn't have a covenant to come against people who do have a covenant? Now, see, he was seeing things differently than other people saw it. He wasn't looking at the height of the stature of Goliath. He wasn't looking at how big and how strong he was. He was looking at the fact that this man didn't have a covenant. From David's standpoint, this was a totally unfair fight. Goliath never stood a chance. Goliath didn't have the covenant. Goliath didn't have a promise from God that no man will ever be able to stand against you all of your days, but they will flee before you. He didn't have the same promises, so it was totally unfair. Goliath never stood a chance. See, when you look at it through David's eyes, David could have also looked at it as this guy doesn't know who he's dealing with. Goliath looked at David as being a little boy. He says, who am I, a dog that they send a child out to fight against me? Goliath looked at him only in the natural and compared to Goliath, David wasn't even half of, half of his height. And the scripture says in 1 Samuel chapter 16 that David was ruddy and there's two ways that that's defined. Some people think that he had red hair. Another way of defining ruddy is that he was of a beautiful countenance. In other words, he's what we would call a pretty boy, a mama's boy today. He wasn't a tough, masculine-looking guy. And so Goliath looked at David and saw him in the natural and disdained him and think, Who am I, a dog that they would send a little boy out to fight against me? But David was not just a boy. David was an anointed king. And Goliath didn't know that. If Goliath could have seen this from God's perspective, David was the giant. Goliath was the one that didn't have any power. See, it just depends on how you look at things. It just depends. I've had people come to me before and tell me that, you know, the doctor says I'm going to die. I've got cancer or whatever. And I just make light of it. And I, what I do, I help them to see that cancer is no big deal. The Bible says Jesus has been exalted above every name in, in Philippians chapter 2. Cancer has a name. And so cancer is no big deal. 
It's not a problem for God. And I know some of you are just shocked like I can't believe that. That's because you have listened to the negativism of this world so much that to you cancer or something like this is just, it's bigger than God. And you may be stating facts, what the doctors say, what the bankers say, what the politicians say. And you may be stating facts, but you aren't seeing them in the light of what God has done. David was able to say, you uncircumcised Philistine, you're a runt. You're nobody compared to God. Joshua and Caleb said, it's no big deal. These people are bread for us. Man, instead of it looking at something that was terrible and imposing, he said, man, this is, this is our bread. This is our meat. This is awesome. What a great testimony this is going to make. You know, I remember when my son died and I started to deal with some discouragement and different things the same as anybody would. But then I prayed. I started praising God. God spoke to me. My faith quickened. And looking at a report that my son had been dead for five hours, I started laughing and telling Jamie, I said, this is going to be awesome. This is going to be the greatest miracle that we've ever seen. And I actually got excited. Some people think, how can you do that? Faith. Faith in God. Man, the bigger the obstacle you face, it's going to be an even greater testimony when you see it turn around. And I know some of you are thinking, where did you come from? I came from the Word. You can get like this if you put your nose in the Word, if you're standing on the promises of God, and if you're evaluating things in the light of the promises. See, this is what Joshua and Caleb did. They spake unto all the company of the children of Israel, saying, The land which we passed through... To search it is an exceeding good land. If the Lord delight in us, then he will bring us into the land and give it us, a land which floweth with milk and honey. Only rebel not ye against the Lord, neither fear ye the people of the land, for they are bred for us. Their defense is departed from them, and the Lord is with us. Fear them not. But all the congregation uh, bade to stone them with stones." Isn't this something? When somebody comes out and begins to start speaking faith and say that you shouldn't be defeated, you shouldn't be depressed, instead of being beat down and fearful and anxious and worried, you need to encourage yourself. Did you know that the average person will speak of stoning you? In our day and age, they'll come out against you and say, you aren't compassionate towards these people. You aren't showing love and mercy. And they will criticize you and come against you. I get this a lot. I have a lot of people that think you're just heartless. You don't care about anybody. I get a lot of criticism. I am compassionate. I'm telling you that you can take whatever situation you're in. I don't care how big the giants are. I don't care how bad your problem is. And if you would believe God and trust God, there is an antidote for your problem. And when you come through on the other side victorious, you're going to have a great, great testimony. I think it's Joyce Myers that says you can't have a testimony without having a test. And people just want to run from their problems. They want to draw back. They want to take the path of least resistance. But you need to find out what God wants you to do and head in that direction. And if a giant gets in your way, kill him. Overcome it. Persevere through it. Encourage yourself. Notice that Joshua and Caleb says their defense is departed from them. And the Lord is with us. Look at this over in Joshua chapter 2. This is 40 years later. Actually, it's 39 years later because when 
uh, Numbers 13 and 14 was written, it was already one year into that deliverance out of the land of Egypt. So this is 39 years later. Joshua sent some spies into the land. And they entered into Jericho, which was a fenced city. It was the exact same situation that the spies had seen 39 years before. But when they got there, they actually hid from the king. The king had heard that two people came to spy out the land. And so these men hid in a house that belonged to a prostitute. Her name was Rahab. And here's what Rahab said to these men. She told them why she was hiding them because she feared the God of the Israelites and she was asking God to have mercy upon her and upon her house. And here's what Rahab said unto these men. This is Joshua chapter 2 and verse 9. And she said unto the men, I know that the Lord hath given you the land, that your terror is fallen upon us, and that all the inhabitants of the land faint because of you. For we have heard of the Lord, we have heard how the Lord dried up the waters of the Red Sea for you when you were come out of Egypt, and what he did unto the two kings of the Amorites that were on the other side Jordan, Sihon and Og, whom ye utterly destroyed. And as soon as we had heard these things, our hearts did melt, neither did there remain any more courage in any man. Because of you, for the Lord your God, He is God in heaven above and in the earth beneath. And then she went on to beseech them that they would have mercy on her, and they did, and they saved her and her house. But notice that she said that from the moment we heard about God drying up the Red Sea, this was 40 years prior to this time. The moment we heard it, there was no more strength in any man. Fear came upon them and they knew that their God, the God of the Israelites, was the true God and they had no fear and their strength was gone from them. Their heart melted within them. So I bring this out to say that you know what? What Joshua and Caleb said was true and what the unbelievers said was true too if you don't believe God. If you don't believe God, if you don't trust God, if you aren't operating in faith then this obstacle that was in front of them was bigger than them. And there was no way that they could overcome that without God. But the deal is they weren't without God. God dwelt in the midst of them. God had already prepared the way. Forty years before they actually entered into the promised land and took it, God had already put His fear upon these people. Their heart had melted within them. And if the Israelites would have looked at things through faith and have trusted God's Word instead of just going by their own reasoning and their own senses, they could have marched into the promised land and they would have had a much easier time 40 years before than they had when they eventually got in there. But see, the Lord had prepared the way. These people were fearful of them, even though they were giants and bigger and their cities were walled. Their defense was gone from them. Their heart had melted. And if the Israelites would have been looking at things correctly, they could have just marched in and have taken over the land with less effort than they actually did 40 years later. Did you know the same thing holds true for us? There are some of you that are looking at things. And in the natural, the doctor says you're going to die. In the natural, it looks like your marriage is over. In the natural, your finances are done. You're going to lose your house. You're going to lose your car. Things aren't going to work. And you're just looking at things in the natural. And if you only go by the natural, if you only approach this in your own strength, then you know what? It's true. You are going to die. You are going to lose. You are going to fail. 
But I'm telling you that God is with you. That God has promises that promise you victory instead of defeat, healing instead of death. You could walk in all of these things, but you're going to have to be like Joshua and Caleb. You know, going back to uh, Numbers chapter 14, I believe it was in verse 24, uh, Moses was told by God that because these people disbelieved and wouldn't enter into the promised land, that they were going to suffer. That they would spend one year in the wilderness for every day that they had spent searching out the promised land. They spent 40 days searching the promised land and they would wander in the wilderness one year for every day that they had spent searching the promised land and except for Joshua and Caleb. And here's what the Lord said uh, in Numbers chapter 14 and verse 24, But my servant Caleb, because he had another spirit with him, and hath followed me fully. Him will I bring into the land whereinto he went, and his seed shall possess it. And of course we find out later that also Joshua was included in this. And so Joshua and Caleb were spared. It said because they had another spirit with them. They looked at things differently. And whether you know it or not, you have another spirit with you. The Holy Spirit is always with you. He'll never leave you nor forsake you. But he's also a gentleman. And He won't force Himself upon you. You know what? The Holy Spirit indwells you if you're born again. And yet, He does not force you to stay positive in a negative situation. You have to choose to do it. Over in the book of Romans chapter 8 and verse 26, it says, Likewise, the Spirit helpeth our infirmities, for we know not what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit helps us. That word helps there is a compound word in the Greek and it literally, it's a combination of a number of words and it means to take hold together with us. The Holy Spirit doesn't do your interceding for you. He doesn't pray and just automatically make everything work out. If it was only up to the Holy Spirit, every one of us would be absolutely victorious and prosperous in everything. But the Holy Spirit takes hold together with us. He doesn't do it for us. We don't do it without Him. But when we do what we can do and we start resisting, then the Holy Spirit takes hold together with us and empowers our little feeble efforts and make them have supernatural results. But see, you've got to stand up and you've got to begin to encourage yourself. And then when you do, the Holy Spirit will take hold together with you and supernaturally increase that. But if you are just down in the dumps, if you have run up a white flag and if you've surrendered to the negativity of this world, then you know what? The Holy Spirit's not going to take hold together with you. You have to initiate it in a sense. In a sense, you have to stand up and then the Holy Spirit will strengthen you once you do that. When David went out to fight Goliath, he had to do what he could do. He got five stones. He put them in his sling. He did that. But the Holy Spirit supernaturally had that stone penetrate the armor of Goliath that shielded his forehead. And that stone went right through the armor and sunk into his forehead. It was supernatural. That wasn't David's ability. And yet David had to do what he could do. And then the Holy Spirit supernaturally increased it. Let me turn over to 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and I want to use Paul as an example. And I won't take time to read all of 2 Corinthians chapter 4, but Paul was talking about 
the obstacles and the criticism and the rejection that came against him. And he even said that it looks like that the apostles were just the least of all saints because the people they preached to, they received the word, they began to prosper, they got healthy, they got prosperous. Everything began to work for them, but the apostles, the one who brought the word to them, they suffered more than anybody else. They had more things go wrong. And so it seems like that the people who brought the word, it didn't work for them as well as the people who received the word. And he was talking about all of these troubles. And then he says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, in verse 16, it says, For which cause we faint not, but though our outward man perish, yet the inward man is renewed day by day. You know, right here, Paul is saying he had all of these problems. He had criticism. He had rejection. He had been in prison. He had been beaten. He was suffering, but he says, we faint not. And even though this outward man is perishing, our inward man is renewed. Well, you know what he's saying? He says, we're still overcoming all of these things. He didn't deny that they had problems. I'm not denying that I have problems. I'm not saying that you will live a life where there will never be any problems, but I am saying that you can overcome them. And even if you stumble and fall and something overcomes you momentarily, and if you fail, you can get back up and you can go at it again. And that's what Paul's saying. He says, we aren't fainting. Today, it's popular to encourage people to faint. Just give up and admit that, man, you're a failure and God, you'll find comfort in this. Well, I believe that God will comfort you if you fail, but God's not going to encourage you to stay there. He's going to encourage you to, He's going to comfort you so much that you can get back up and go again. Amen. So he says, For which cause we faint not, but though our outward man perish, yet the inward man is renewed day by day. And then he said in verse 17, For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory, while we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Now, I'm talking about how to stay positive in a negative world. Or you could rephrase this and make different applications. How to be victorious when it looks like failure is imminent. How to still maintain your faith and your joy and your peace when everybody around you is falling apart and all of these bad things are happening. Paul is talking about he had a light affliction. And when he says it was a light affliction, it wasn't because he didn't have any problems. See, some people read this and think, well, that's the difference between Paul and me. He had a light affliction and, oh, I've got such a heavy load. And they will begin to talk about how bad their situation is. And they try and make you feel that nobody knows the troubles they feel. Nobody knows their sorrows. They've got it worse than anybody else. Man, I meet people like this all of the time that spend a lot of time trying to convince me that they've got the worst problem that anybody's ever had. You know, I'm not going to go into the whole story, but I remember back in the beginning of my ministry, they were bringing me a woman who needed to be delivered. And I said, bring her on. I'll pray for her. We'll get this devil cast out of her. And they said, but you don't understand. This is really bad. And they got to telling me that Satan himself had walked into her room and appeared unto her and he gave a date. And on such a date, she was going to be totally demonized and she was going to lose her salvation in any hope. And they went on and they spent hour after hour telling me about the terrible things that this woman had been through and how demonic manifestations and all of this stuff. And I said, well, bring her and I'll pray for her. And they said, but you don't understand this is really bad. You're going to have to fast and pray in order to deal with this one. 
And you know, this was back in the beginning of my ministry and I didn't know any better. So I fasted for seven days before they brought this woman to me. You know, if I was to do that now, every time somebody needed a devil cast out, I might be plumb gone. Praise God. I'm not saying that it was wrong, but it was unnecessary. And so they brought this woman to me. And you know what? I just started sharing the word with her and saying, you're believing a lie. You've believed a lie here, here, here. And I shared the truth of the word of God with her. And I told this woman, I said, now I can pray with you and you can be delivered. And she says, you don't need to. I'm free. You shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. John eight thirty two. And as I shared the truth of God's word, she got delivered through the word of God. And she didn't have to throw up in a bucket or roll on the floor the way some people make you do when you get delivered. The truth set her free. And you don't have to go through all of this stuff. Some people see her saying, but oh, I've got such a bad situation. It's nothing compared to God. And this is what Paul is saying. It's just a light affliction. For those of you that... Let me just turn over here to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. And let me read a few of Paul's light afflictions. He listed these things over here. He said that I'm speaking as a fool. And what he meant by that is that he was speaking as a lost man. In other words, Paul would have never have said these things on his own. This isn't the way he reasoned. But since these people were carnal and only looking at things from the natural point of view, then he would get down and talk like a natural man did. So here's what he said in 2 Corinthians chapter 11 and in verse 23. Are they ministers of Christ? In parentheses, he says, I speak as a fool. In other words, as a lost man. Paul would never say he was better than another person, that he was a greater minister, he was a greater apostle. Matter of fact, he said in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he says, I'm not even meet to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. Paul didn't exalt himself based on his own self, but he knew who he was in Christ. It goes on to say in 1 Corinthians 15, 10, but by the grace of God, I am who I am. He wasn't claiming that he was unworthy. He was just saying that in himself, if you just judge it based on actions, he's unworthy, but he's not just in himself. He was in Christ. He knew who he was. And so he's talking like a lost man would. Are they ministers of Christ? I speak as a fool. I am more. And then he begins to list some of the things that made him more of a minister. And he talks about some of the things he did, some of the persecutions he endured. He said, in labors, more abundant. In stripes, above measure. That means he couldn't even count the number of stripes that had been given unto him. Did you know we don't have record of that in the book of Acts, talking about Paul's journeys. We have some of them, but you could count all of the stripes that Paul got in the book of Acts. But he says here that it was much more. So that means a lot of things happened that were not reported. So he says, in stripes, above measure. In prisons, more frequent. Paul had been in prison more than anybody else. You know, I go into a town and I check into the Holiday Inn or whatever hotel and stuff. Paul, he would go to the jail. And he'd say, you guys save me a spot. I'll be here before the week's out, before the month's out. He, he spent more time in prison than anybody else in deaths off. Now, we have one instance recorded in the book of Acts where he was stoned and left for dead. He mentions in Ephesians that he fought with beasts at Ephesus. But we don't know all of those times. But he says here that he was close to death many, many times. Of the Jews, five times received I forty stripes but one. 
Now see, he had already said that he had had more stripes than he could count, but there was uh, five times that he could count them. And so five times 39 would be 190, I guess 195 or something like that. So, and, and he could count that, but he said that there was more stripes than that. But have any of you ever received 195 stripes? Have you ever been in prison so many times for preaching the gospel? How many times have you been close to death? How many times have you done all of these things? He goes on to talk about thrice was I beaten with rods. This is where they would hang the person up and literally beat the bottom of their feet and their calves with rods and break the bones. And you got to remember, he didn't have a wheelchair. He didn't have a car that he got around in. Paul walked wherever he went. And to have this done three different times to him, we don't know that his bones were broken, but that was the purpose of beating people with rods. I don't think it would be out of line to think that he had some bones broken, and yet he walked up to 20 miles a day. He says, once was I stoned, and if he wasn't dead, he was so close to being dead that the people who tried to kill him thought he was dead and left. So he was right on the brink of death. Personally, I believe he probably was dead because it says as the disciples stood round about him, God raised him up and he walked into town. And so it was miraculous. If he wasn't dead, he was very close to it. Thrice I suffered shipwreck. We don't have record of any but just one of his shipwrecks. But he says it happened three times. A night and a day have I been in the deep. We don't have record of that in Scripture, but that's what Paul says about himself. In journeyings often. You know, some people may not appreciate this, but I've been traveling for, I don't know, 35, 40 years. And, uh, you know, the first 20 years, it was exciting. And it's just a pain now to travel. I enjoy it when I get there. And I'm using the convenience. I mean, I fly on airplanes across the ocean and they serve us meals. And we are, you know, it's only like eight hours or eight and a half, nine hours between Denver and London in style. uh, Paul, when he traveled, it was a totally different thing. He didn't have a Hilton to stay in. He didn't have the conveniences that we have. I can guarantee you it's a pain for me. I've been praying for translation. And if that's the way that I feel, think what Paul did for 30 years. Traveling. He mentioned this as being one of the things that he suffered. It gets old after a while, traveling. In perils of water, in perils of robbers, in perils by mine own countrymen, in perils by the heathen, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils among false brethren, in weariness and painfulness, in watchings often, in hunger and thirst, in fastings often, in cold and nakedness. Besides those things that are without, talking about just the physical things that he suffered, that which cometh upon me daily, the care of all of the churches. Did you know just having the burden of the people that you minister to and when one of them, if you really love the people you minister to and when you pray for someone and you don't see them healed and they suffer, or somebody that you've spent years ministering to gets off track and gets discouraged and turns away from the Lord. Did you know that affects you? So it's not only the physical things that you deal with. It's all of these spiritual, emotional things that you deal with. So I just mentioned that to say some of you think, well, Paul just didn't have as many problems as I've got. 
If you go over there and read that list, I guarantee you, I think every person would have to say, Paul suffered more than you did, and yet he called it a light affliction. How could Paul do that? It's not because his problems were less, it's because of the way he viewed them and processed them. It is not your problems that are the problem. It's the way you view them. It's the way you respond to them. It's the fact that you magnify them, that you make these problems big. The truth is Satan throws a little tiny toothpick in your path. And your mind is like a pair of binoculars. Whatever you focus your attention on, it grows and it gets bigger. And some of you, he's put little tiny things in your path. But by the time you get through thinking about it and, and fearing about all that could go wrong, it becomes this huge, huge timber and the devil is just beating your brains out with it. And in reality, it's only a, the size of a toothpick. But in your mind, it's this huge thing and it's destroying you. You can take that same pair of binoculars that magnify everything and you can turn it around and look through the big end and out the small end and you can shrink things. The same pair of binoculars that magnifies also shrinks. Your mind can also shrink everything down to its proper proportion if you do what Paul talked about here. He gives two reasons why he had just a light affliction. It's not because he didn't have as many problems as we have. It's because of the way he looked at it. So what did he say? The very first thing he says here, he says, For our light affliction, which is but for a moment. Man, this is a powerful truth. You know, you need to start evaluating everything in the light of eternity. You know, there's people that they just, they, they think like non-believers. They think like people that don't believe there's a heaven or a hell. That they think this life is all that there is to it. And so the doctor comes and says, you're going to die. And you just think, die. It's the end. It's over. It's all done. But if you looked at things in the light of eternity, what would happen if you did die? Not that you have to. I believe that God wants to heal you. But let's say that for whatever reason, you didn't receive your healing. If you looked at it from God's perspective in the light of eternity, what would happen if you do die? You go to be with Jesus. You live forever in a mansion you are going to be reconnected with people that have gone on before. You'll get to worship God in face to face. And if you look at it that way, you know what? You wouldn't fall apart like a $2 suitcase when they tell you you're going to die. We sing this song about when we all get to heaven and then the doctor tells you you're going there and you start crying. Something's wrong with this picture. You aren't looking at things properly. Paul said it was just a light affliction. You know one of the reasons why? Because he put it into the perspective of eternity. We don't know exactly how long Paul ministered, but let's say it was 35 years or whatever. And he suffered and he'd been shipwrecked and he'd been beaten with rods and he'd been beaten with stripes and he had not only all of the things without, but all of the cares of the ministry and everything else. But it's no big deal because it's only for 35, 40 years. And did you know it has now been nearly 2,000 years that the Apostle Paul has been in the presence of God in eternity without any of the pressures and the hurts and the pains of a physical body. He's been with the Lord. He's rejoicing. He sees things from a different standpoint. And I guarantee you, Paul has been rejoicing for nearly 2,000 years. And in comparison to that, you know what this 30 years, 40 years that he spent ministering down here and being persecuted. It's no big deal. That would make a difference if you looked at things that way. 
I've had people come to me and say, I've been standing for a year. I've been standing for a month. I've been standing for two years, 20 years and believing for something. And they just think that that is intolerable. And yet, if you put it into the light of eternity and recognize that compared to eternity, down here is just like snapping your fingers. It's no big deal. See, that helps shrink your problem down. That helps keep you positive in a negative world. And Paul is telling us how he was able to do it. He made this radical statement that my light affliction, which anybody else would have said it was a huge affliction, a heavy affliction. How could he say that? Because it's only for a moment. It's not going to last forever. And he says that it works for us and a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. It says in Romans chapter 8, and I think it's around verse 17 or 18, that the sufferings of this present time are not even worthy to be compared to the glory which shall be revealed in us. Man, that is an awesome statement. I don't care how much you've suffered. You know, I've been to Auschwitz. I've been in the gas chambers. I've seen where these people lived. I've seen video footage of the terrible things that were done to the Jews. And I've been in those places. And you know, you see this suffering and it just becomes so real to you. You wonder, God, how could this, how could people that suffered through these things ever be compensated? How could it ever be heaven? Of course, many of them may not have known the Lord and they may not be in heaven. But for the people who were true believers, you know, how could they ever get over this in eternity? See, that's because we only look at things from a human perspective and we see all of the tragedy and the things down here. But from God's perspective, Paul was writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and he said that the things suffered here, and that includes Auschwitz, that includes every person that's ever been raped and tortured and whatever has happened, whatever problem you've ever gone through, if you are a true believer... When you get into the presence of God, the glory that is revealed in you, not just to you, but in you, is going to be so awesome that what happened here on earth isn't even going to be worth mentioning. Man, that is quite a statement. And I know that most people will not agree with that because they look at things only from a human perspective. But God, speaking through the Apostle Paul, said that from his perspective, the supply is so much greater than the need that it is not even worthy to be mentioned in the same context. God is going to compensate us so much that all sorrow, all tears will be wiped from our eyes and we are going to rejoice throughout all eternity. And that's what the Apostle Paul is saying. That just makes it a light affliction. I don't care what I'm going through here. I am going to be so compensated. It's just for a moment and the supply is going to be so much greater than the need that I can suffer through anything. I don't care what I'm going through. I am going to come out smelling like a rose. I can't lose for winning. Man, that is awesome. You need to put things into the context of eternity. Amen? And then the second thing he says that made his affliction light. This is talking about how he stayed positive in a negative world. How he was able to overcome. How could he overcome all of these terrible things that he suffered through? He talked about because he puts it into the light of eternity, recognizing it's only a moment. The second thing in verse 18, he says, While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal or temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. 
So these two things are very similar. They're talking about the same thing. He didn't just look at things the way that humans look at it. He didn't just see in the physical realm, but he saw what was going on behind the scenes. Sure, he was being persecuted. He was beaten like in Philippi in the 16th chapter of the book of Acts. You can read about that. And he was beaten. His back was bloodied and raw. He was put in the stocks in the darkest part of the prison. And I can guarantee you this prison didn't have good hygiene. There was probably rats. There was all probably all kinds of stuff going on. It was totally dark. And with his back hurting, he was in stocks. His feet and hands were in the stocks. He couldn't do anything to comfort himself, get in a comfortable situation. And yet he began to rejoice. He began to start singing praises. And he didn't do it just as a weapon and I'm going to do this to resist and fight because he wasn't doing it just to get something from God because when the Lord sent an earthquake, you know, I believe God got to tapping his foot to the music. <laughs> Amen. This earthquake comes and it looses all of the prisoners' chains, all of their doors open up, the stocks fall off. And Paul, when he got deliverance and could have left the prison, he didn't. He stayed there and he was still praising God. So that shows you that he wasn't just doing this in order to get something. But here's a radical thought. Even with his terrible situation, his back hurting, him being rejected, punished unjustly, he was praising God because he actually loved God and was just happy in a bad situation. He wasn't doing it to get something because when he could have left, he didn't leave. He just kept praising God. That's radical. Boy, there's very few people would do that same thing. You might do what's right in order to get deliverance and to get God to move and to get something that you need. But man, how many would just praise God because you are actually happy and want to praise God? That's rare as hen's teeth. But that's what Paul did. And you know why he did it? Because he saw things that couldn't be seen. He wasn't just going by the natural. He wasn't just going by the pain in his back. He wasn't just going by the insult and the shame that he had felt. But the Apostle Paul, as he said over in Philippians chapter 3, he longed to know the fellowship of Christ's sufferings. I could spend a lot more time explaining that, but real quickly, the Lord feels our pain when we suffer. He told the Apostle Paul when he appeared to him on the road to Damascus, he says, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? He didn't say, why are you persecuting my people? He said, why are you persecuting me? The Lord takes the persecution of his people very personally, very seriously. And when we are persecuted for righteousness sake, Paul was beaten and in the stocks, but he wasn't there on his own accord. He had seen a vision in the 16th chapter of Acts where a man said, come over into Macedonia and help us. And so he was doing this in direct response to what Jesus told him to do. And because of it, he knew that he was suffering for the cause of Christ. And it says 2 Corinthians chapter 1 that anytime we suffer, we also receive consolation so that the consolation is even greater than the suffering. And Paul spoke about this, the fellowship of Christ's suffering. You know what he was feeling? The Lord Jesus honoring him and saying, Paul, thank you for obeying me. Thank you for being a testimony. Thank you for standing up. And even when they whipped you and put you in the stocks, 
thank you. And God was loving on Paul. Man, the Lord's moved by our feelings. He knows every little thing that happens to us. And just like if Paul had been a witness for me, if I had asked Paul to go do something and because of it, he was beaten and put in prison, man, I would feel like, Paul, I appreciate you. I thank you for being faithful. And I would do something to try and bless him. If I could get him out of prison or make his suffering less, I definitely would do something. Likewise, Jesus loved Paul and he was loving on Paul and telling him, thank you. And he was honoring him. We can see this with Stephen. When Stephen was stoned to death in the seventh chapter of the book of Acts, it says that he saw the heavens open and Jesus standing at the Father's right hand. In every other scripture, after Jesus rose, he, he was seated at the Father's right hand, symbolic of the fact that his work was over. It is finished. It's complete. And now all we have to do is appropriate what he's already provided. And so in every other instance, Jesus is seated at the Father's right hand. But in this instance, He's standing. You know what I believe that was? I believe that was Jesus honoring the very first martyr after the new covenant was put into effect. The very first person that gave His life, Jesus was so proud of Him that He stood and honored Him. And I believe that because of that, man, all of these rocks that were hitting Stephen... I'm not sure that he even felt it because he was looking at Jesus, honoring him and loving him. And when you are persecuted for the cause of the Lord, I guarantee you God ministers to you. And that's what was happening to the apostle Paul. And he wasn't looking at things in the natural. He wasn't thinking about this isn't fair. God, why did you let this happen? How could these people do this to me? He was looking at the unseen things. That's what he says here. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at things which are not seen. Paul was looking to the Holy Spirit. He was receiving spiritually. His physical body may have been suffering. His outward man may have been perishing, but his inward man was being renewed supernaturally. And because of it, he was able to sing in the midst of a situation that would make most people cry. He was able to stay positive in a negative world. He was able to operate in faith and joy when other people would have been griping and complaining. We're talking about how do you do this? I'm telling you how he does it. He first of all put it into the light of eternity. This is just for a brief period of time. I'm either going to be martyred and go to be with Jesus and that's awesome. He said in Philippians chapter 1, for me to live is Christ and to die is even better. He says, I'm longing to go to be with the Lord, but I guess I'll stay here because it's more beneficial to you. If you are thinking that way, if you put things into the light of eternity, then it's just for a moment. Either he was going to be killed the next day and he's going to go to be with Jesus, which he said was better, or God was going to supernaturally set him free and use it as a testimony and he was going to have another notch on his belt, another supernatural thing that God had done that he could glorify God over and use to tell people about. Either way, it was going to work out and it'd be over. See, most people don't think about that. They get tunnel vision and they'd just be thinking about my back hurts and this is unfair. And they would just be so focused on the moment that they forget all of the blessing and the rewards of God. They don't think about anything but just themselves. We need to put things into perspective. You know, I've said this testimony a number of times, but it just really blessed me. 
And uh, so I'm going to tell it again. If you've heard it before, well, praise God, I've heard it more times than you have, and I'm still blessed by it. But, you know, I go to Charlotte, North Carolina. One of my partners, he sold his business since then, but I used it for about 10 or 15 years. I used to go into his business. He would tell the people, the clock is running. You sit and listen to this man as long as he wants to talk, and I'm paying you to listen to him. And so I'd just get in and preach the gospel to him. And I remember one year I was there, I ministered, and then he gave me a room back in the break room, and he paid for his employees to come back and talk to me. And I got to lead about 10 of them or so to the Lord. And then this one woman came in who she was an alcoholic, and she had been married either three or four times, and she had just been told that the guy she was married to wanted to divorce her, and it would have been, I think, her fourth divorce. And she just couldn't handle it. She was poor. She had all kinds of problems, and she just tried to commit suicide and end her life. And the day before I was there, she had slit her wrist. They put her in the hospital, and she was released that day. It was her first day back at work, and she came back and talked to me and just told me the situation. She was crying, and she says, it's my fourth divorce. I can't stand it. If I get another divorce, would you please pray for me? And she says, I'm not a Christian like you and Chip, the owner of this business, but I know that prayer works and I want you to pray that I won't get a divorce. I just can't stand it if I was to get another divorce. And I just stopped this woman right in the middle. I said, now let me make sure I've understood. You aren't a Christian. And she says, that's right. I said, if you were to die right now, you would go to hell instead of to heaven. And she says, that's right. And I said, and you want me to pray for your marriage, that it won't fail instead of praying that you'll be born again. And she says, that's right. <laughs> I looked at this woman and I said, don't you realize that after you've burned in hell for a thousand years, you won't give a rip whether this marriage worked or not. Who cares about your marriage? You need to get saved. And I mean, it's just like I slapped this woman. She just automatically stopped crying and she looked at me and she says, you know, you're right. I need to get saved. I need to get right with God. So I prayed with this woman and we got her born again, baptized in the Holy Spirit. And I said, now let's pray for your marriage. It's not that God isn't concerned about your marriage, but see, you need to put things into their proper perspective. There's things worse than divorce. And you know, one of those is going to hell. I'm trying to tell you that regardless of how big your loss is, God is bigger than that. And God can fill you with His love and compassion. And you can still be positive. You can still be joyful in the midst of a situation that is killing and destroying other people. You do not have to be overcome by the negativism, the fear and the doubt of this world. But if you are going to overcome it, you're going to have to get into the Word of God. And you're going to have to start using the Word to let you see things with your heart and put them into the perspective of eternity and then go by what you see in your heart and be persuaded of them. I've already talked about all of these things. You know, I'd like to use Jesus as an example of this. You know, some people think that Jesus was God and so therefore how can we relate to Him? Jesus was God. He was God in the flesh, it says in First. Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. And so I believe that Jesus was 100% God, but He was also 100% man. We don't understand how that can be. Some people might think, well, He was 50% God and 50% man. No, He was 100% God in His spirit, but His physical body was 100% natural. It wasn't sinful. It wasn't corrupted. 
like all of us have had our body corrupted, but it was a human body. And it says in Hebrews chapter 4 that he was tempted in all points like as we are, yet without sin. Jesus was tempted with being tired. Jesus was tempted with, you know, just being put out with people. He was tempted with everything that came against us. He had physical temptations. When he entered in to the crucifixion, the night before his crucifixion, he didn't want to die. Just like any person has a desire to live and not die. God didn't create man to die. And the night before his crucifixion, he was in agony in Gethsemane. And I don't think it was only over the physical death, but even more than that, he didn't want to become sin. Jesus didn't just take sin in a token amount. It says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, For He, God the Father, made Him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be made sin for us. Jesus became sin for us. He didn't just taste it. He took every vile thing, every act of sodomy, every act of adultery, every lying, every steal, every, every vile thing, murder, rape, all of those things entered into Jesus. He took our sin and He became sin. He suffered our shame. He didn't want the physical death, but even more than that, He didn't want the spiritual death. He didn't want to experience separation from His Father, and yet He said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's a quote from Psalms chapter 22, and the very next verse gives the answer, and it says, But thou art holy, O God, which inhabits the praises of Israel. The reason God forsook him is because holy Jesus became unholy by taking our sin into his own body on the tree. 1 Peter 2.24 says he took our sin in his own body on the tree that we being dead to sin should live unto righteousness by whose stripes ye were healed. Jesus literally became sin for us and he hated these things and he did not want to die physically. He did not want to die spiritually and be separated from his father and become sin. And so he pled with God if there was any other way to get this done. And yet, he was willing to do it because that's what he came here for was to bear our sins. He wanted to accomplish God's will and when he saw that there was no other way, he submitted himself and he says, not my will but your be done. How was it that Jesus was able to go through with something that he abhorred and come out on the other side? None of us have to go through what Jesus went through. None of us. You know, in the physical realm, there may be some people that have been tortured and died, but nobody has ever gone from absolute purity, from being God, to being separated from God the way that Jesus did. And none of us can compare. How did Jesus, how was He able to do all of this? And again, some people say, well, He was just God. Yes, He was God, but He had a physical part. And He had to discipline His physical part the same way that you and I do. Here's what it says in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1. And it was talking about all of these people in chapter 11 who the heroes of faith who had done these awesome things and God had flowed through them and miraculous things had happened. So it says in chapter 12, verse 1, Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us, 
looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest you also be wearied and faint in your mind. Man, there's a lot said in these verses, but I want you to see it says that Jesus, for the joy that was set before him, endured this cross and despised the shame. So this is saying that Jesus, even when he was on the cross, he wasn't thinking about things the way most of us do. Jesus did not focus on just what it was costing him and the agony that he would go through. For a period of time in the garden, Jesus dealt with that. And he, he was broken hearted. He sweat as it was great drops of blood. I've read that a medical doctor says that when you literally sweat blood, it's because your heart ruptured. You know, under stress or under grief or something, your heart ruptured and you literally begin to sweat blood. And the angels had to come and minister unto Jesus physically and give him strength or he wouldn't have been able to last through the crucifixion. His heart burst because of the grief that he was going through, but that was only for a period of time. And once he saw that there was no other way to accomplish this, then here's how he was able to endure the trial and the mocking and the crucifixion and becoming sin. It says, for the joy that was set before him. Yes, he felt these things, but then once he reconciled it that this was God's will, he set joy before him. And that's how he was able to endure the cross and despise the shame. What does that mean? I believe, here's the way I look at that is, that Jesus, because he was God in the Spirit, he drew upon the Holy Spirit, and through the gifts of the Holy Spirit, Jesus was able to see you and me and the millions and billions of people's lives who've been absolutely changed because of what he was about to endure. And he looked at it and he said, it's worth it. You know, that's amazing. Most of us, because we love ourselves so much, we wouldn't have suffered that and we wouldn't have looked... And it doesn't matter how much our suffering would benefit somebody else. We would say it's not worth it because to us, we are the center of the universe. But God so loved the world that He gave His only Son. God loved you and me more than He loved Himself. And He saw us. And He saw people whose lives would be changed. He saw you. And He said, you're worth it. You're worth all of this suffering. And He saw the benefit that His death would have to other people. And because of that, He was able to endure the cross and despise the shame. That's how Jesus was able to stay positive in the midst of the most negative situation that any person has ever endured on the face of the earth. He did it by setting joy before him. He didn't just look at the suffering. He, did, he wasn't fixated on just what it was costing. He was well aware of it. It was proven in the garden when he prayed. But once he knew God's will, he looked past that. Like we were talking about Paul, he was looking at things that couldn't be seen. He wasn't just looking at the physical cross. He wasn't just feeling the physical pain. Through the power of the Holy Spirit, he was looking down through eternity and he was seeing you and he was seeing me. 
And he was saying, it's worth it. It's worth it. I love them more than I love myself. And I'll suffer for them. And he, I believe, some of you may think I'm totally wrong on this, but I believe that Jesus actually, even though there was terrible suffering in the physical realm, I believe he was feeling the joy of the Lord, thinking about what his death was going to accomplish. There was an anticipation and there was actually joy in his heart. I'm not denying the fact that he was suffering physically and he was being ridiculed and all of these things, but he was looking past that and he set this joy before him. And notice it says he despised the shame. This word despise here means to disesteem. You know, over in Romans chapter 1, it talks about why people fall away from God and it says because they don't glorify God. That word glorify there means to esteem God, to magnify Him, to make Him bigger. People don't glorify God. Well, that exact same word is used here with a prefix on it that means to, you know, change, to be the opposite, to disesteem. People fall away from God because they don't esteem. They don't value God properly. They don't put the importance on Him that they should. Likewise, Jesus was able to endure the cross because He disesteemed. He devalued the cross. He says this suffering is nothing compared to what it's going to produce. And see, this is what you've got to do. If you want to stay positive in a negative world, you can't avoid all problems. Jesus had problems. Jesus was suffering. And yet Jesus was able to look beyond his suffering and see the good that would come out of it and see how that this would bring salvation to you and to me. And because of that, I believe that there was even a satisfaction and a sense of joy amongst his terrible suffering because the joy that was set before him. And he did that and he devalued his suffering and said, it is nothing compared to what it'll produce. And this is what Romans chapter 5 and James chapter 1 is talking about when it says, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations, knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience, and patience experience, and experience hope. And on and on it goes and talks about it. It's not saying that God puts those trials in you, but when you come into trials because you live in a negative world and you will be fought against, you are going to have problems you turn around and start going against the flow and I guarantee you, you're going to meet resistance. You are going to have problems. God doesn't cause them, but He told you they would come. And when they come, look beyond it. Count it all joy. Set the joy before you and say, you know what? I am going to come through this thing. I'm going to have a testimony. I'm going to rub the devil's nose in this. Plus, I will learn something through this. As I apply my faith, I'm going to even get stronger and now because I've got this experience, because I'm going to overcome this thing, I'll be able to help other people. I'll be able to encourage them. And just like Jesus, you have to look past the problem at the answer. You know, it's like when you take a picture with one of those cameras where you focus through the lens. I've got one of those and I've been to the zoo. And you know, you can get it right in front of a chain link fence. And if you focus on the animal in the background, then that chain link fence just disappears. It's like it's gone. It's still there, but your focus is beyond it. And the thing you're focused on comes into view. Or you can either focus 
on the chain link fence and make everything in the background a blur and you can't even see the animal that you were going to take a picture of. That's the way that your mind is. You can either focus on your problem and if you focus on your problem, you'll lose sight of how you'll come out on the other end and how you'll be better and how you'll learn something and how God is going to use this for a testimony and you'll be able to encourage other people. You can either lose sight of that and just focus on your problem or you could focus on God and on His promises and on how this is going to work together for good. Not that God caused it, but God can work it together for good. You can come out, you'll be better on the other side and it just literally depends on your focus. That's what it's saying about Jesus. Here's how he endured the cross. He set the joy of you and me having our lives changed before him and thought it's well worth it. He disesteemed, he despised the shame of the cross. He refused to let that dominate him and motivate him. And instead, he was more motivated by the positive things that would happen. And the result is that he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God And then it says in the next verse, For consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest you also be wearied and faint in your mind. If you are weary and feel like fainting, if you're ready to quit and give up, I can guarantee it's because you're operating out of your mind instead of out of your spirit. Instead of setting the promises of God in front of you and standing on what God says, you're going by just your own resources. You're leaning to your own understanding. And that's the reason you're weary and fainting in your mind. It's like Peter walking on the water. As long as he focused on Jesus, Matthew chapter 14, then he could walk on water. But when he took his eyes off of Jesus and began to look at other things, he began to sink. And Jesus reached out and pulled him up. If you are weary and fainting, if you're saying, I just can't handle it anymore, it's because you aren't looking at Jesus. You're listening to all of the commentators. You're reading the news. You're watching the junk that's on television. You're doing something that is allowing all of this stuff to come at you and it's making you negative. You have to be able to look past that. You have to set the joy in front of you. That, Father, I'm going to stick with what you told me to do. And if I never see success in this life, I'm going to stand before you someday and say, God, I never turned back. I never went the other direction. To the best of my ability, I followed what you told me to do. And you'll be rewarded throughout all eternity and it'll be well worth it. You have to look at that. You have to look beyond things. You have to despise the things that you're suffering right now and not exalt them. With your mind, you need to magnify God's Word and not magnify your problem. I've been talking about things for the last four weeks that I tell you, if you could take these things and put them into practice, it would revolutionize your life. 